Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to the Partly Political Broadcast podcast, the comedy politics podcast that is the home of truth. But unfortunately, it's not in right now. Uh, A few weeks back it said it was going on a bender because no one cares about it anymore and it hasn't been seen since. I'm Tina Duyeb, and yes, the UK is in its last few days officially within the European Union before it embarks on 11 months of transition. Like saying you're leaving a party and then it taking two hours to say goodbye to everyone, or having your last day at work before having to come in next week in order to train your replacement. Chancellor and the moon from the Legend of Zelda Majora's Mask, Sajid Javid, has unveiled a commemorative 50p coin to mark the occasion, because nothing says Brexit like ruining British money for a completely arbitrary reason. The coins say peace, prosperity and friendship with all nations, which is a great message to publicise when three of the four countries in our own United Kingdom have rejected the withdrawal agreement and one of them is trying to leave and go independent but can't because Westminster has technically tied them to a radiator. A more appropriate message for the coin would have been to have half the UK's 50p's say stick a croissant up your ass," and the others with you're all small-minded twats printed on them while all pound coins just featured the Queen trying to eat her own face. The withdrawal agreement has been signed by the European Council's president and secret member of the Bluth family, Charles Michel, and European Commission president and someone that will likely be played by Tilda Swinton in a dystopian sci-fi in years to come, Ursula von der Leyen. Michelle said that things will inevitably change, but our friendship will remain the same, because it turns out international politics is not unlike a teen drama where everyone is naive about reality. Afterwards, Prime Minister and, oh, that's what happened to Kasper Hauser, Boris Johnson, signed it saying he would hope that it brings an end to far too many years of argument and division, a large amount of which was caused by him. That's like saying you hope road repairs will fix a dangerous dual carriageway that's caused many accidents, but only after you and your pals spent a week smashing up the tarmac with pickaxes and covering it in spike strips. So, all done now, and it's just all the rest of it to go. And what sort of excitement does that future hold? Well, Irish Prime Minister and Manager of Retail Park Carpet Store, Leo Varadkar, said the EU has a population and market of 450 million people, while the UK only has 60 million people, so if the two teams were playing against each other in football, who do you think would win? 
has he ever watched football before? I mean, you're only allowed 11 players, so I think if both brought their entire population onto the pitch, they'd be very quickly disqualified. And God, it would take ages. And how much would all the kits cost? Just sounds like a nightmare. Varadkar's point was meant to be that the EU would be the stronger team in trade talks, but trade talks aren't really like football either. Otherwise, the UK would actually be positive about the idea of players from abroad instead of trying to get rid of them. These sorts of comments come from Varadkar as he has an election this year and has to look all tough, but it doesn't really work if you're pretending you'll be great at a game you don't even understand. He may as well be boasting that the EU has 27 countries, so as the UK has only four, they'd be worse at the luge. The Taoiseach doesn't think that trade talks will be done by the deadline, but Boris Johnson insists that he's going to be able to wrap it all up by the end of 2020, though that could just mean he's re-gifting it at Christmas so he doesn't have to deal with it anymore. Though to get a better idea of what post-Brexmas will be like for the UK, just look at the 2020 World Economic Forum in Davos, where the global political elite and Bond villains alike meet annually to tell each other how they plan to block out the sun this time around. The big story from this year's event was pint-sized protester Greta Thunberg telling the conference that on climate change they needed to act like they loved their children above all else, a comment that was lost on US President and leather wrapped around an airhorn Donald Trump, as that would mean he'd have to love something more than himself. He was no doubt further enraged by Thunberg's comments to forget about a net zero, we need real zero, as Trump disregards everyone that he ranks below a seven. And so his response was during his speech to reject predictions of the apocalypse and told people to stop listening to the so-called prophets of doom, making everyone wonder if we need to take him to a beach where there are warnings about sharks so he can decry them and then go for a swim. Trump did say that he was a big believer in the environment though, which is handy as he lives in it and it'd be hard to do so if he wasn't sure it was there. He insisted that he wants the cleanest water and the cleanest air, but he wasn't clear on if anyone else should get it, like, say, the people of Flint, Michigan. While all this was happening, Westminster sent along Chancellor Sajid Javid, presumably because after hearing Greta's message about acting like you love your children, Boris Johnson was too busy trying to find out who his are. Javid was there as part of a panel where he mentioned how the UK won't back down from its new tax on tech giants, but the US Treasury Secretary and star of Brain Age, Steve Mnuchin, said it was discriminatory, you know, to all those incredibly rich companies who don't want to contribute to the economies they operate in. Ah, poor them! Who will stand up for these guys who only want to steal your data and then make a profit from it? Well, luckily, Steve Mnuchin has threatened the UK with taxes on car companies, which feels a bit like a self-own. I mean, making sure it's too expensive for people to actually go anywhere while allowing those who pretend they are somewhere else to avoid fees. Maybe the UK and US should meet somewhere in the middle and insist everyone working for a tech giant within our country has to live in a car that's constantly moving. The US say they want to reach a trade deal with the UK this year, so it could mean that we still let Google pretend it's only virtually in big buildings in the UK, while the US buy just 18% of our cars as manual gears confuse them. The government has announced a post-Brexit fast-track visa in order to attract all the world's leading scientists to the UK, because nothing says we're interested in research and fact-based evidence quite like Brexit, does it? Also getting a fast track is the HS2 railway, despite costing a lot more than initially proposed. As the Brexit secretary and man who doesn't exist unless people remember to think about him... Oh no, wait, I've forgotten. No, I've forgotten again. Wait, no, no, there he is. Stephen Barclay said that the HS2 is necessary for levelling up the country. And there's that phrase again, said by a bunch of people who don't understand how computer games work. Otherwise, they'd be wary that by levelling everyone up, they'll be more able to take down the boss by the time it comes to the next election. Considering Boris Johnson had to hide in a fridge from a reporter with adequate journalistic skills, he'll really struggle against several million people with enhanced strength, defence, shield and magic abilities. 
Health Secretary and Jimmy Neutron's thick twin, Matt Hancock, has declared that the UK is well prepared to deal with the rapidly spreading coronavirus, which likely means he's just spent a lot of public money getting someone to design an app that tells you when you've died from it. Over in Opposition Town, there are now just four contenders left in the Labour leadership race after Jess Phillips's favourite Jess Phillips, Jess Phillips, dropped out saying that she had to be honest with herself and say that the next leader had to be able to unite the party and that leader wasn't her, Jess Phillips. Now she can focus on spending more time telling everyone if it had been her, she'd have been the best at it. That leaves Dora the Explorer, Lisa Nandy, who's through to the final round and who said that the UK should look to Catalonia for lessons on how to defeat Scottish nationalism, which I guess would help Labour reclaim their Highland seats, but by terrifying violent force and oppression. No, we're actually knowing the Scots, no, it still, it still wouldn't work. Keir Starmer, a.k.a. Smart Cheese String, has also got into the final round and is vowing to end the Westminster Monopoly, which is tricky as then you'd go straight from Bow Street to Pentonville Road unless you land in Community Chess, the electric company, or jail first. Rebecca-long-bailey-hyphen is close to qualifying after being backed by Trade Union Unite, though several anonymous MPs have told the press that they'd leave the party if she won, which shows she's definitely the candidate to bring the party together, but only because the ones that are left after she gets in might actually get on with each other. Then hanging on is Emily Thornbury, someone who I assume would swear in front of kids because they have to learn sometime. But she still needs more constituency Labour Party groups to back her. She also has caused anger in Scottish politics after declaring at Hustings that she hates the SNP and thinks they're Tories in nationalist clothing. Which is a really silly thing to say, as most of the Tories are already Tories in nationalist clothing. Events have taken place to mark 75 years since Auschwitz was liberated. Boris Johnson said that he felt a deep sense of shame that anti-Semitism continued in the UK today, but obviously not that deep or he'd have expelled three of his new MPs already. This week, the government will be deciding on whether to allow Huawei to supply elements of the 5G network. The telecommunications giant are insisting that they'd never take orders from the Chinese government, but if that's true, how do any Chinese state officials buy things online? Plus, the NHS funding bill is being debated as I record, which Matt Hancock says will inject the largest and longest cash settlement ever granted into the NHS, but doesn't say if it'll get a bed while it has that injection or if it'll have to sit in the corridor while it waits to be seen by a number of extra nurses that are actually already there and busy with other things. And lastly, the doomsday clock has moved to just 100 seconds to midnight, meaning that according to scientists, we're now closer to catastrophe than we've ever been since its creation in 1947. Although it was set as seven minutes to midnight when it started, and it's gone back and forth since then, so actually I think they need to get someone to check it or at least replace its batteries. What about swapping it for a 12-hour clock, and then we're just nearly at midday, and soon we can all chill and have lunch. Howdy, howdy, let's get rowdy. Uh, It has not been an exciting week of politics, has it? Instead, it's been all coronavirus related, which I think you can survive by just popping a lime in your mouth. Ah, The joke that everyone has done this week. But somebody wrote a blog about how it's a hugely unoriginal joke, but credited me as the very first writer of it in a tweet that I did back in 2013. So I didn't even know coronavirus was around then. Apparently it's not new at all, it's just making a comeback, which means it'll probably do the same old hits and a few TV appearances before disappointing everyone and slinking off into obscurity again. Oh, it's just a second SARS. I do wonder uh, if I need to go back through my tweets in 2013, see what else I predicted, just in case. Could be the saviour of us all. Um, This is the last partly political broadcast that is recorded and edited from inside the EU, which is odd, isn't it? 
Sure, we'll be in the transition period next week, but I'm hoping now we'll all be free from the bureaucracy of unelected officials that aren't all the unelected officials that we have in the monarchy or the lords, just, you know, the other ones that eat nice things and have better weather and were in large part elected, that maybe, just maybe on this podcast, we can get some sweet deals with listeners in, I don't know, the Faroe Islands. Or maybe the US will have to make some sacrifices by increasing the working hours I do on this show, reducing the holiday and probably pouring chlorine over my microphone, which will cause me to have weird flashbacks about having to swim in my pyjamas in order to pick up a brick. Something that feels like a nightmare anyway. It's very rare, what with me living in a big road in North London, that I'll suddenly find myself in my pyjamas with a need to dive to the bottom of a watery space to collect building materials. What were they teaching us kids in PE at school? Or maybe it was very forward-thinking climate change disaster survival. Maybe in the future when everything's flooded and building work is more hazardous and um, clothing is more relaxed because we've all stopped giving a shit as we're too busy fighting robot tigers. Maybe all that will be necessary. Who knows? Um, what was I talking about? Yes, uh, last week of EU times, I sort of feel like I should do something. Are you doing anything to sort of say, oh, we, you know, to sort of celebrate the time we were in it or celebrate leaving? I don't know what you want. I sort of feel like maybe I should eat more cheese that I really like or repeatedly say chorizo. Like one of those arseholes who says, that's how you say it in Spanish does. You know, I should do that. Mini Duyeb uh, gets taught 1 to 10 in different languages at the Diddy Dance class that she goes to. And she started telling us that she can count in spinach before vaguely saying uno, dos, tres, etc, etc. Which is both, like, amazing that she can do that, but also adorable that in her mind there is a land of spinach where they have their own language, perhaps to warn each other of Popeye attacks. Who knows? Um, but also, it's a bit sad, isn't it? She's learning it just before, you know, we're never ever going to be allowed in Spain ever again. Uh, no, not because of Brexit. I think we'll probably still be able to travel there. I just shouldn't have sent all those letters to the Spanish government threatening them that me and the kid will eat them in a quiche. Uh, so yes, welcome back to a weird, not all that much to talk about episode, but I'm pleased you're here anyway. God, what we'd have given for one of these weeks last year, eh? Oh well, uh, better late than never, maybe. Um, but look, while you're here, this show has now fallen off the Apple Podcast charts, which I think means we're in pod limbo. So if you fancy getting us back on there by recommending someone you know have a listen, please do that. And thanks to those of you that have been recommending the show on the onlines and the socials um, it is much much appreciated it is tricky as this show is on the comedy charts even though it's not all comedy and it's on the news charts even though it's not all news so I guess it's probably just annoying two groups of people so successfully that they aren't subscribing anymore win um but yes any recommending to others is appreciated as is donating to the ko-fi.com forward slash parpol bro or patreon.com forward slash parpol bro sites or even writing a nice review on one of them podcast homes that you visit to steal its audio children from uh, other admin this week, um, the kids' politics show I've been touring for the last year or so called How Does This Politics Thing Work Then, um, which I do with Tatton Spiller from Simple Politics, many time podcast. Um, it's starting its 2020 run on February the 8th at the Pegasus Theatre in Oxford, followed by Greenwich Theatre on the 18th of February, West End Centre in Aldershot on the 21st of February, and then loads more shows from March onwards, including Chorley, Helmsley, and the British Library, which sounds very fancy. Um, I know, I know you're all bored of politics, really, um, but you're listening to this so weird and also this show that I'm talking about has jokes in it uh, which is suitable for everyone age 7 plus um, so do come along bring your small people links will be in the pod blurb as per all the time ever 
This week's show has a chat with geopolitics expert from the US Reconsider podcast, Zander Snyder, all about US things and global politics things in general. Plus, a mini look at the Labour leadership. And look, I know there should be a Brexit fallout this week, but I mean, there's not all that much to say that I haven't already said on this podcast in the last three years. Um, apart from maybe, you know, I hope that somehow it all turns out okay, despite me being 99.9% sure that Johnson has absolutely no idea what to do next, which means we could end up with an incredible soft Brexit as he just sort of keels over and goes for the easy option or a no deal as he charges out clueless as to how to handle things and that's when you realise nothing has changed since 2016 nothing so you know we may as well talk about something else as I just haven't got the energy to only do rain dances between now and Friday so that collapsed lung Nigel Farage gets pneumonia have it can you say partly political broadcast broadcast Can you say all of it? Can you say partly political broadcast? Broadcast. It's always been clear that the American view of the rest of the world can be a bit confusing for the rest of us. And yes, I understand that I'm saying that as a citizen of a country who still thinks it's a mouse that can roar despite purposefully walking into a trap announcing that this bleeding to death will definitely lead to more cheese for us all. But it's often noted that the US Baseball World Series only actually has American teams in it, somehow having decided that the rest of Earth doesn't need to be included in that global competition. Yet when it comes to domestic politics in America, the whole rest of the world is automatically included with little say and little option for fair competition. In the first few weeks of this year, President and what if global hypercolour went out of business because they experimented on people, Donald Trump, has had tangles with Iran and China, all the while berating people who are concerned that the world is on fire, an odd complaint when it's coming from a man who always looks like he's spent his life standing too close to one. The UK is directly affected by US policy at the moment, having been warned off taxing big US tech firms while insisting the UK is top of the list to trade with a country whose leader believes in America first. So yes, it's in our and well everyone around the world's interests to know about American politics, such as just what is happening with Trump's impeachment trial and will it make any difference about anything and just which of the potential Democratic nominees might challenge Trump's top spot. Will it be the man who looks like someone wearing makeup and talcum powder to make them look old for an amateur theatre production, Joe Biden? who represents the sorts of politics voters rejected in order to vote for Trump instead in 2016. Bernie Sanders, a socialist Doc Brown of the kind that just lost to a lying populist in the UK, and Elizabeth Warren, a woman who which sadly is enough to be considered unvotable in various states that seem to have evolved straight from Margaret Atwood's mind. Evolved is probably the wrong word, to be fair. Will this year bring big change to the US politically or not? And how will the world be affected other than maybe just being calmer in general if everyone knows they could be waking up in the morning not expecting to have to backtrack through a series of irate toilet tweets to find out just why World War 3 has started this time? So, this week, I spoke to Zander Snyder. Zander has worked as a geopolitical analyst for Geopolitical Futures, an online publication that analyses and forecasts the course of global events, and he now co-hosts his own podcast and site called Reconsider Media, all about helping to find common political ground by providing people with all the information but no one to tell them what to think. So Zander was the perfect person to ask what we need to know about US politics, current geopolitics, and ways that might allow political divisions to heal worldwide. Zander was so well informed and so interesting to speak to that, as you'll hear, some of my questions were woefully unprepared in comparison to his answers. And at one point, I just completely forgot that Joe Biden exists. So there you go. Um, So excuse the noises that me, this idiot, makes throughout, but I very much hope you will enjoy all of Zander's fascinating chat. Here he is. 
Hi, Zander. Thank you so much for being uh, on the podcast. Um, Right, in the UK at the moment, we've had so much of our own uh, turbulent political nightmare awfulness uh, over the last couple of years that we're, I, I feel like we're all a bit behind on what's going on in the US at the moment. And I know there's currently Trump's impeachment hearing and there's uh, him pulling back on various um, pollution policies. Um, could you give us a little bit of an overview on, on what's happening in US politics right now? Oh, that's such a broad question, right? Because US, <laughs> U.S. politics is also global politics because we have our hand in everything. I mean, I could I could go from some of the dem, uh, domestic issues with the impeachment and the ongoing election cycle to all the stuff going on in the Middle East and China with the trade deal. But if you're looking purely at domestic politics, the big ones right now are the impeachment trial. So today's Thursday. So that would mark the, the third day that the Senate trial is going on. And they've been arguing about how to carry out the process and whether or not they're going to allow witnesses, and they've been going back and forth on that. Um, the election campaign is still going on. The Iowa caucuses is going to be coming up soon-ish in the next month or something like that. And that's the process by which the Democrats will have their uh, primary elections, which is how they select one of the candidates of the, I believe the initial count was 18 million, 18 million candidates that were running for the Democratic nominee. And then later this year, we'll have the general election between whoever they select for the Democratic candidate versus, of course, the incumbent, President Trump. Right. That was that was brilliant. That was a brilliant summary. Um, so what's the kind of feel in America? At the moment? Do you feel like Trump is likely to stay president? Um, I mean, with things like his his recent um, decisions to kill uh, Qasem Soleimani, was it was that popular in America? Because, you know, sort of post Iraq, it feels like there's been resentment to, to the idea of another war. Um, but is, is he becoming I know he wasn't particularly popular. <laughs> is he becoming more popular from from decisions like that? I definitely like to come back and chat a little bit more about the Soleimani assassination, but just in terms of how it affected public opinion in the U.S., it was certainly divisive, like a lot of things that President Trump does. In terms of do I think he'll win, man, honestly, that's anyone's guess, right? I think if you want to do, if you want to go look at sort of the best stats on probability of election wins, 538 is still there, and they still struggled with the 2016 election, although they didn't, quote, get it wrong. They just said Trump had it like 25 percent chance of winning, which means that one every four times he would still win. So I think it's entirely possible that President Trump could win a second term. I don't really know how to predict that sort of thing. But the issue with the Soleimani assassination is really interesting because it has to do with more than just President Trump. It has to do with American foreign policy in the Middle East and more generally how the U.S. understands even what's going on in the Middle East and what his interests are there. Right. So, I mean, again, as, as you mentioned, that the US, you can't just discuss US politics without discussing the entire world. I mean, he's been in, in Davos this week and he's making some rather big statements about, you know, how they're going to be tackling climate change as well. Um, is, I, I, I'm guessing a lot of this, though, is down to who the Democratic candidate is likely to be and then what direction America goes from there. Well, if you want to talk about the Middle East, just because you brought it up as an example, the challenge of the U.S. understanding what's going on there stems far beyond Trump, right? I mean, what the Middle East is undergoing right now is a civil war along multiple axes between Sunnis and Shias, different sorts of ethnic conflicts between Turks and the Kurds, and sort of the interstate conflicts, if you want to call it that, between Iran and Saudi Arabia and Israel and sort of where that all intermingles in Iraq. And right now, the Trump administration 
has essentially pinpointed Iran as the cause of all problems in the Middle East. And it's just not really an accurate analysis. And this is not a criticism of Trump per se, because the U.S. has continually failed to understand what's going on in the Middle East. And we're very good at picking one bad entity and going whole hog and trying to destroy them. But the challenge is, if there is not one single entity or one person causing all the problems, then we're essentially misdiagnosing the illness. And I think that's really what we're doing with Iran right now. But it's also what President Obama did during the Syrian civil war and when he intervened in Libya. And that is, I think that sort of strikes a little bit at the essence of American cultural identity, which is if we're going to go intervene abroad, you know, we want to be able to identify the thing that is evil because we like the idea of confronting some sort of evil entity. But unfortunately, the world's just more complicated than that. Yeah, sure. It's sort of simple power politics, isn't it? It's saying that this is, you know, and, and again, I suppose with the election coming up, that makes Trump look or can, could make him look quite good saying that I am defeating evil in this other place. And that's specifically who the evil is, you know, and that, certainly sort of, I'm guessing that works, you know, in, in his head, at least that would work in his favor. Yeah. And you clearly can't ignore the fact that that happened during the all of this um, all of the the, the process of the impeachment trials, I won't say the actual impeachment trial itself because it didn't start until after the assassination, but there's there's a probably a pretty good chance that President Trump was trying to distract from a lot of the domestic issues with everything that led up to the impeachment process with the Ukraine scandal. So domestic politics in the U.S. necessarily impacts its foreign policy as well. Sure, of course, of course. And, and the impeachment... Uh you know, the impeachment trial, is it, uh, you know, from the vague understanding I have over here is that it requires the Senate to um, sort of uh, go ahead with it as well, which, which you know, that it won't happen because it's majority Republican. Is it looking like this will sort of end without an impeachment going ahead? So the way it works is the, the articles of impeachment that have been passed by the House, that's the actual impeachment. So President Trump has been impeached. But the removal from office, which is a separate step, is what the Senate decides upon. And there have been three American presidents that have been impeached, President Trump, uh, President Andrew Johnson and in the mid-19th century, and President Clinton in 99. None of those people have been removed from office. Nixon was about to be impeached, and the party lines lined up that he probably would have been removed from office, but he resigned before that happened. So President Trump has already been impeached. Now, in terms of what's going to happen afterwards, I do think at this point it's it's almost inevitable that he's not going to be removed from office because that's just sort of how the party votes are divided up in the Senate. But the bigger thing that that says about the state of America right now is that we are so divided that you can predict something like that, that in an issue as you know relevant to the constitutional underpinnings, underpinnings of the U.S., you kind of already know how the vote's going to fall because it's going to fall along party lines. And that's, I think that's a sort of a problem, but that's the bigger problem. And for that reason, I think the Senate trial is going to end up being more political theater than anything else because the outcome is already fairly well determined, unfortunately. But does the fact that Trump's been impeached um, in theory, will that affect his candidacy for, you know, running again uh, to, to be president? Could that, I mean, do, do, does the whole of America see, well, he's been impeached, there must be, a problem with him? Or again, does the fact that the US is so divided mean that that's kind of nullified? 
Well, if I put myself in the mind of someone who really dislikes Trump, then I'm probably still going to vote against him because I think he's even worse than when he <laughs> got elected. But if I'm someone who believes the narratives that this is another witch hunt and the Dems just want to overturn the 2016 election, then this might actually upset and frustrate a lot of people. Now, of course, there's the slim middle ground that might actually be swayed by reason instead of the tribal rhetoric that is dominating the American political dialectic right now. But there aren't a whole lot of people like that. So could it, the impeachment actually impact 2020? Unfortunately, the answer is maybe. I don't know. It might. But, you know, President Trump was fairly effective in 2016 with using attacks against him, sort of, you know, how in jujitsu you leverage things to work back against the other person. And he, he did that fairly effectively with Hillary Clinton. So I don't think we can discount that he may be able to do that again with the impeachment narratives. And I want to talk to you a lot about how the US is divided at the moment, which but it sort of comes into this question as well. Is um we've mentioned democratic candidates a few times. I I know that Elizabeth Warren say I know Bernie Sanders. Um and then after that, I think we're a bit clueless here at the moment. I, I, I speak for myself, really, rather than listeners. They're probably a lot more sweated up than me. Um, is anyone, uh, you know, likely to get a strong uh, majority and become the lead Democratic candidate? Is anyone going to be a leader that doesn't divide the entire Democratic base? Because it seems like there's a lot of divisions just within who, who might become the Democratic representative. Yeah, it seems like the the three top, possibilities right now are sanders warren and joe biden hmm. oh, yes, Biden. whether or not yeah and i mean if, if i had guess i'd say it'd be one of those three i don't know who exactly but you'll notice that all of these folks are are fairly up there in age and this is just my personal opinion but you know at what point does does someone's age become a criteria in terms of their ability to manage a country right reagan developed alzheimer's in his second term uh, that's something that we don't really have much of a choice on on the Democratic side if you're voting in the primary because everyone's in their 70s. Will they divide the base? I, I don't know. There are divisions in the U.S. that are in both the Democratic Party and the Republic, Republican Party right now. And I talk about these as divisions along different axes. So you have right and left, but increasingly the parties are splitting along, um, you could call it populist or I don't like that word, anti-technocrat and technocrat. Like um, if you favor sort of the way the, the status quo or if you're anti-status quo and those status quo, anti-status quo divisions exist in both parties. So Sanders and Warren revent, represent more of an anti-status quo within the Democratic Party than people who would support Biden. Now, I think generally most Democrats in the U.S., and this is a vast overgeneralization, so take it with a teaspoon of salt, but most Democrats are going to be willing to bind together in order to do whatever they have to to defeat Trump. So it's all going to come down, again, probably to those swing states and whether or not you can convince the people who maybe voted for Obama but then subsequently voted for Trump that they should vote Democrat instead of Republican this time around. I don't think you'll see a lot of Democrats not voting for their candidate for that reason in 2020. Right. That's good to hear. Because, I mean, one of the things that we've had in the UK with our, our sort of main opposition party, the Labour Party, um, it's it's almost more in opposition to itself than it is to the, the, the main government and the Conservatives, um, just because of the difference in political opinion that is, is within one party. And we sort of see some of that reflected in the Democratic, uh, you know, in the Democrat Party as well. Um, so it's, it's interesting that 
you know, you say that they will stick together, which puts them definitely one up on on the UK parties. Um, in just ability to be kind of a, 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 a group or a team rather than just a group of people that squabble all the time. Um, do, do you feel like US <laughs> politics is... I don't know. Is it is it as divisive as as it has been? Because a twenty sixteen felt like, uh, you know, America was kind of split a bit down the the middle in terms of politics. What's um not not sort of in terms of geographic location, but in in terms of just some people were very pro Trump, some people pro Hillary, and that was that. And is it still as divisive and tribal as it as it was? Has anything changed uh, in in the years of Trump's presidency? When my friends ask if I'm a cynic or an optimist, sometimes I describe myself as a closet optimist. And here's what I mean by that. I do think America is still very divided. Is it as divided as 2016? Well, you still have some of the same structural problems, right? The media through which the vast majority of Americans who even care about things like politics and current affairs, the media that they have access to or that they're they're more most likely to tune into is incentivized to create sensationalist narratives and rhetoric because that's what gets more eyeballs and that's what generates more profits. The problem is that doesn't necessarily encourage the sort of conversations that Taryn and you and I are having right now. And these are really the discussions and debates that bring out the details and the issues and allow you to talk about things like policy as opposed to just sound clips of candidate A or B and focusing on personality traits that really will have very little impact in terms of ability to execute or implement policy. So I don't think that's changed. I think a lot of the same structural problems are still there. I think a lot of people who care about current affairs are still tuning into that sort of media en masse. But what I do think has occurred in in more and more after 2016 is you've had independent sources of news, some of which is very high quality, come out to to try to have more reasonable conversations. Again, like the one that we're having now, like the ones that you have on your show more generally. And I think podcasts have really sprung up more and more in the last four years that have kind, kind of tried to go, wait, 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 what, what's going on? Why, why can't we have a conversation with people we disagree with? How do we understand each other? How do we disagree civilly? How do we work on a problem that initially seems we disagree with? How do we see each other as fellow Americans working on an issue that concerns us both as opposed to like an enemy to the country? So that seems to be picking up steam. And I think that as demand for that sort of political news coverage grows, you are going to see incentives force some of the structural uh, issues to, to kind of go in that direction of offering somewhat better coverage. And there are places like that, like Monk Debates. They have hour and a half long um, debates with two people on, on each side where, you know, the, the debaters are not a- actually allowed to talk over their, their turn like they do in all the presidential debates. So they're forced to present the details of their concepts as opposed to just fighting over sound bites. So I, that's how I'm a closet optimist. I think there is a growing demand in America for better discussion about politics. Oh, that would be that would be fantastic. That sounds like such a great way to debate. <laughs> it would be such a relief to have that here. Um, you, is it is it generational in the US? Because uh, we've seen in the in the last election that the way in which people sort of fifty five sixty over the majority of I don't want to generalise, but the majority of um, sort of predominantly voted conservative, but also were had Facebook adverts targeted at them and things like that. And younger generations tended to vote 
differently and also we're less they're now sort of less on facebook and are switching off from that so can't be influenced and the, and the tabloids here which are controlled by a very sort of specific uh group of well really sort of multi-millionaires who have very specific mostly right-wing political views um their their readership tends to be of a certain age range is that the same in the u.s is there is there a generational or an obvious generational gap in 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 what people are voting for and, and how their politics work I think so. I think generally older folks tend to vote more conservative and younger folks tend to vote more liberal. But honestly, that's a falsifiable question. I could go look that data up and give you a more exact answer. So I don't <laughs> know for certain, but there is an absolute answer to that. Is it more to do with um, is, is how much of it's to do with region in the US and is it it's a, or, or class? Um, and, and jobs and, and, and things like that. Because again, I think generational here is, is largely also to the fact that there are people of a certain age from sort of 55 onwards, so the baby boomer era, they have assets and a lot of the younger people here don't anymore um, and very much need a world where they can either gain some or at least have job prospects. Um, is that a, a similar situation? Region definitely matters. And if you look at how different states vote in different presidential elections and different local elections, I mean, the middle states are often swing states. Florida is often a swing state. The south is generally red. The coasts are generally blue. And just as the UK has different regions with unique cultural identities, that's also the case in the US. We're all one country, unlike the UK. But Alabama is a very different place than New York City. So there are different priorities and different cultural values, different ethical values that people consider when they're voting for a representative. In terms of class, that also clearly matters. There are lower middle class people who feel like they've been left behind by globalization. And, you know, some politicians will focus their rhetoric on trade deals as being the cause of the problem. But really, there are larger forces like automation and so on and so forth. But then there are people in sort of lower middle class on the coast as well who wouldn't support the same policies. So there are still those divisions even within similar strata, similar socioeconomic strata, but all of those things matter, which is why I think the idea of left-right as a single distinction is becoming increasingly out of date and we'll probably see in the next decade or so realignments of political parties. And this is something that we've done episodes on on the reconsider podcast and how that's happened in the past and why it's likely to happen again in the future ryan reynolds here from Mint mobile with the price of just about everything going up during inflation we thought we'd bring our prices down so to help us we brought in a reverse auctioneer which is apparently a thing Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. 
Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. And we'll be back with Zonda in a minute, but first... I've not said all that much about the Labour leadership on this podcast so far because, let's face it, it's going on till April. I can't be bothered to write descriptions for everyone involved in all of it and I didn't want to waste it as a subject far too soon. I mean, look, what's the news this week? Tech taxes, uh, world economic forums, blah 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 Who knows what it'll be like after this week when the government has banned everyone from saying Brexit, when the new BBC director-general is somehow Stanley Johnson and every show is just him doing 1970s racial slurs, and when the new budget involves no-one getting any money except a pal of Boris's who puts pop-up bars inside council houses when people are still living in them but they're forced to stay outside every day till the restaurant closes otherwise they're just being antisocial. So really, you know, I sort of feel I should save Labour leadership stuff for when it's needed. But it turns out in a week where the biggest news was Sajid Javid holding up a 50p coin like he'd never seen one before and was dreaming about all the sweets he could buy with it or all the arcade games he could play, let's at least have a look at what it is that's going on within the opposition. So, at the moment, the potential candidates for the next round of, well, if they had anyone else in charge, they'd win, are Keir Starmer, Rebecca Long-Bailey, Emily Thornbury and Lisa Nandy. Meanwhile, running for deputy, there's Rosanna Allen-Khan, Richard Burgeon, Dawn Butler, Ian Murray and Angela Rayner. First up, there was nominations from the Parliamentary Labour Party and the European Parliamentary Labour Party getting a little go before they're no longer there. Um, And those closed on January the 13th. Uh, Between January 15th and the 14th of February, constituency parties and affiliates can say who their favourite is. Just in time for Valentine's. Ooh-wee. And then on the 21st of February, all the members and people who paid 25 quid and became a supporter can all vote for who they want as leader and deputy leader uh, until the 2nd of April. Sure. I mean, why rush? It's not as if Labour can do anything to defeat any of the majority Conservative government's votes anyway, so they may as well take their sweet-ass time choosing who's likely to survive five depressing years without someone digging up something from their past that seems to show, I don't know, they once killed an endangered bird with a dropkick or something. The issue is, what do Labour want to be next? Should they go more centrist, something that the Lib Dem election battering seems to suggest isn't exactly a popular route? Or should they stick to socialism, something that was really popular in 2017 but then wasn't with voters in 2019 as apparently it was just too much of it? Ugh. Do they do socialism but with maybe a bit less or a takeaway box for later when you can't finish it? Or was it still popular but they just didn't like the leader so much that it put them off voting for it? Do Labour keep the manifesto style but, you know, with a new face? Or was all of it Brexit, which now isn't an issue and it won't really matter what they do, they just won't be Boris Johnson, so maybe it'll be a breeze, even if they just like let a potato win. Though to be fair, everyone likes potatoes, so overall probably not a bad idea. Do Labour finally need a female leader, or just an 80s video game character male one? Or has what's been missing throughout been someone who's willing to say, actually, the entire system has been shit for so many years now and we need something new, voter reform and a change in how we do everything in order to tackle the current nature of jobs and jobs in the future, climate change and us only really being able to trade with Malta. 
I'll go into all the candidates in a few weeks' time, depending on who's left then. But what is already clear is that everyone is being labelled as being centrist or left or right of the party. But so far, all of them have confusedly said and proposed things that mean they're not as easy to pinpoint as that. Rebecca Long-Bailey is supposedly the continuity Corbyn candidate, but she's made some tricky comments on abortion limits. Lisa Nandy in her party history and a number of things she said recently is definitely to the more centre-centre-right of the party, but also wants to target big businesses to get them to pay a proper living wage, which is sort of back to the middle or the left. Keir Starmer is seen as a centrist but back Corbyn throughout his leadership and is also proposing some very socialist changes, and Emily Thornberry's housing change proposals are, as she says, more radical than Corbyn ever was, but then she also wants to keep Trident because, hey, maybe all the new social housing she wants has bunkers underneath it. What is interesting is that CLP membership has increased a lot since December the 12th, which means while those new members can't vote in the CLP nominations, they can vote in the membership ones. But a lot of reports are saying people have joined in order to vote against the more left-wing candidates, people who left under Corbyn but have now come back and were hoping for Jess Phillips but may now vote for Starmer or Nandy. But then the existing membership is very pro on keeping the party to the left, and there's quite a lot of them, and momentum are backing Rebecca Long-Bailey. So it's very hard to say he'll come out on top, and then how that may work when the leader comes to pick a new cabinet and wants to keep all the members on board. It's always said that Labour is a broad church, but with each new swing of the party, it becomes more like a fat cathedral full of people who know that they don't like what the Conservatives are doing, but hate what each other are doing even more. It's looking likely that Thornbury will be out in this round, leaving Nandy, Starmer and Long Bailey, and that for the deputy it will likely be Rayner, Butler and Burgeon through to the finals. It would just really be nice if whoever wins, everyone says, just for a little bit, cool, hey, let's give that a go, we'll back them for five years, because hey, what else are we going to do? I mean, look at Ed Davies, really? Really, why would you do that? (laughs) And, you know, whoever the Labour leader is, they have to be considerably better than having a Prime Minister who's basically the mind of conceited 11-year-old popped into a bean bag. As I said, there'll be a lot more on this and a lot more on the candidates in coming weeks because I'm going to have to find something to fill the time. But for now, back to Zander. And that's that's not just in the US, though. That's uh, likely to happen across the world, isn't it? Because we're seeing... Just in, in, I mean, you know, in India with Modi, there's, there's been, and, and across Europe, we've had in Italy, there's been sort of, uh, I, I know you don't like the term populist, I can't think of another word, <laughs> but, you know, populist parties kind of rising up. There's been a real change in how voters seem to work, Lo- uh, party loyalties have seemed to have disappeared um, as to how they used to be. And so I'm, I'm, do you sort of think that that's going to keep happening across the globe? Will we see a period of settlement or are there too many things that may happen over the next 10 years in terms of climate change and the change in tech and everything that that will keep disruption going on. No, I think you're right. And I think the reason that we're seeing this sort of disruption and tendency towards realignment of political parties around the world is because the forces that are driving that change are global forces. They're happening in India. They're happening in the UK. They're happening in different parts of Europe. They're happening in the US. To a certain degree, they're happening in some places in South America. You're kind of seeing the, there were, the what's the word uh receding of the pink tide um macri in argentina got elected although he hasn't been so successful with his policies so that's happening the reason i don't like the word populist is because if you think about politics then by definition you're trying to be popular you're trying to win Mm -hmm. so everyone is trying to be popular so what's the difference between popular and populist you're appealing to a different group of people that you're trying to be popular about now I understand why populist is a useful term for discussions, and sometimes the summaries and the concepts that you use, the terms that you use in discussion are imperfect, but still useful for the sake of having those conversations. So anyways, that's why, that's my only quibble with the word. 
<laughs> That's a very fair quibble. See, I, I have the uh, slightly more childish view where I think pop music is generally rubbish, so I assume populism <laughs> is also quite rubbish. <laughs> <laughs> just just for the general audience, it's not as cool as the cultural alternative music, uh, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> Um, so what do you think are going to be the, um, and you sort of briefly mentioned it there, but w- what do you think the the biggest challenges are for, for geopolitics in, in not just this year, but in the kind of next decade? What do you think are going to be the, the biggest changes? That are, uh, I mean, it's very hard to predict, but in your opinion, what do you think the biggest changes might be? And uh, wh- where do you see things going? Well, there's a lot changing in the world when it comes to geopolitics. And if you start, if you want to start at a very high level, a conceptual level, then we're moving from what a lot of policy wonks would call a unipolar world to a multipolar world. And all that means is that from essentially 1991 until recently, the U.S. has been the sole superpower. And as Russia recovers from the dissolution of the Soviet Union and China's economic growth sort of picks up some steam, you're beginning to see different poles of power emerge around the world. Now, I don't think in the next 10 years you're going to see China emerge as a superpower on the level of U.S., in part because they're struggling with so many domestic challenges themselves, financial, political, let alone the... Uh, what do you call those, like black swan events like you had with the African swine fever and the army worm and now with the coronavirus that's broken out in Wuhan. And similarly in Russia, they're going through a lot of structural changes in their political um, in their uh, political administration. Putin has been sort of reorienting, reorienting or at least talking about reorienting sort of how the Russian political system works. And they don't have ton of power to project beyond, you know, limited air force incursions in Syria and supporting proxies in Ukraine. But that's essentially the shift that we're seeing. And as that shift happens, the U.S. is going to be forced to confront the types of challenges that have just not been front and center on the minds of most Americans for the last 20 years. We've been worried about, quote unquote, terrorism. And unfortunately, the word terrorism has come to mean anyone we dislike. And that's how you get people in the U.S. government labeling Qasem Soleimani as a terrorist, even though when you think about terrorists, you usually think about non-state actors, and he was the head of a state organization. So I struggle with that label for him in particular. But it means the U.S. is going to have to begin devoting more resources towards these state challenges. The, The challenge posed by China is much greater than the challenge posed by Russia, but the challenge posed by Russia is larger than the one posed by Russia in 1996. And as that happens, the U.S. is going to have to develop some sort of policy to either limit its intervention in the Middle East or figure out what it even wants to do in the Middle East so it's not constantly getting resources tied down there and it can begin to refocus on the Pacific. And part of its Pacific strategy is going to have to include Japan. It's going to have to include India. Uh, Clearly, it's going to include Australia. So that means the U.S. is going to have to focus on how it can cooperate with these different countries. And as you mentioned, there is a rise of Hindu nationalism in India right now. So even though we have a very strong relationship with India, that's not always been the case. In the early 70s, we had a much stronger relationship with Pakistan, and India was close to Russia, or the Soviet Union at the time. And India is still close with Russia. It gets a lot of weapons from Russia. But as this Hindu nationalism becomes more and more prevalent in domestic politics, you might have to ask, is that going to be a roadblock in the U.S. being able to continue cooperating with India? Or will India engage in things like 
some of the citizenship stuff that is done in Assam and trying to limit non-Hindus from having Indian citizenship, is that going to limit its ability to cooperate with India against China? So that's that's a very high-level painting of what's going to change in the next 10 years. And uh, presumably as well, if uh, climate change is taken seriously, um, it, it, what you know, what trades and exports people have is going to change massively as well. The Middle East kind of oil market is going to, or presumably would disappear. China's got thousands of coal factories, uh, which you'd hope would, would sort of go out of business or they, they'd find renewable energy instead. And, and I'm guessing that could change how everything works too. One would hope. On on reconsider, we try to be pretty upfront when we're expressing what we think is an opinion versus something else. And so this is an opinion. But I do think climate change is one of, if not the greatest challenges and major problems of our generation, in part because the way to solve it requires cooperation between countries that generally see themselves as, if not enemies, then competitors or geopolitical adversaries. At the same time, the technology is beginning to exist that can compete with some of these um, fossil fuels like oil, like coal in China. But China still needs to provide electricity to all of the rural parts, uh, rural areas of China. And it limited, I think, I think it was last winter or the winter before that, it limited access to coal specifically for some of the pollution problems that they've been having. And people were found without heating and it became this big political problem that put pressure on the regime and they had to backtrack on it. So that technology may exist, but it doesn't exist at the scale to make the changes yet. As far as oil goes, I don't think that the U.S. is still concerned about the Middle East for its supply of oil because the U.S. is now a net exporter of I think both crude oil and all petroleum products, but we pr- we're producing like 11 and a half million barrels a day of, of crude oil. We're the largest producer of crude oil in the world right now. But if there is a disruption in supply of oil from the Middle East to the rest of the U.S., sorry, to the rest of the world, you would have an impact on price and that could affect the U.S. economy. So the U.S. cares about the global supply of oil in part because it affects global markets and the price of oil, but not necessarily because it would impact its ability to get oil in an emergency. We have a lot of that. We we have as much as we need right now. I don't know if I've actually answered your question, but <laughs> no, no, we you have you have in in I mean again I, I suppose it's just my curiosity as to if uh what people need and what people are buying changes uh because of the nature of what it's doing to the planet i you know i i wonder if that's going to change the political power structures as well i mean presumably not because there's still a lot of money in in weapons and various other things that you know aren't affecting the climate as directly but i'd have thought if the oil market for example disappears or or changes and and if china's main power thing just as two examples change that would then change their power or their uh, they're trading. Well, China's been investing fairly aggressively in new green technologies. I worked at a startup. I co-founded a startup a couple of years ago in the green tech space, and we were pursued fairly aggressively by Chinese VC of uh, VC capital. But of course, in exchange for that capital, they wanted access to the technology and to prioritize a rollout within China. So they know it's a problem. They know that the pollution that fossil fuels are creating in places like Beijing are creating political problems. Now, in terms of whether it'll change the geopolitical space, I don't know. I am, when it comes to geopolitical competition, a bit of a cynic in this sphere. In this sphere, I think it will be very difficult for countries like the U.S. and China and India to all cooperate on these intergovernmental policies. 
So again, opinion, I think probably the only way forward for solving the climate crisis is to find uh, solutions that are profitable and can compete economically with existing fossil fuel technologies. Because I, I think that innovation is not going to come from cooperation between countries. No, 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 no. Sadly, sadly not. I think I agree with you there, which is, oh, goodness. Um, <laughs> just terrifying. Generally just terrified. Um, I uh, I really like what you do with Reconsider Media. And it's just fascinating talking to you today uh, as well. Uh, I feel like all my questions aren't enough. I'd like to ask you an awful lot more stuff. Um, tell me about what you're doing with Reconsider, because... I think even just speaking to you today is is it feels like it's constantly more and more important that we don't just think about local politics and we are considering politics around the world with pretty much everything that, that's going on. Um, why do you think it's so important that, that people get a better understanding of it? Well, if you want to have a positive influence in the world, you have to have an idea of what's actually happening. And I think more often than not, the way that a lot of news sources, and I don't want to malign all mass media because some of it's still high quality, but a lot of them represent events as incremental discrete events. So like this happened, then that happened, then this happened, then that happened. And everything is the biggest deal ever. And this is, this is unprecedented and this is historical. And it's, it's hard to keep track of all of that, especially if you don't have a little bit of context to know, okay, well, this is happening. This is a new event, but something like this happened 10 years ago and the other party supported it. And that same party thinks it's, it's, you know, heretical now. So there is some sort of flippage in terms of what the tribes were thinking at one time or another. So what we do on Reconsider is we try to provide that context. We do historical context, economic context. A lot of the times it's foreign policy context, things that have happened that Americans may not be familiar with, but when you're aware of it, gives you the opportunity to develop a somewhat more nuanced opinion. So we say on Reconsider that we talk about politics, but we don't do the thinking for you. And the idea there is if you're aware of options A through C and you like B the most, we just want to tell you that options D through F also exist. And then maybe you'll like F more than B, but we're going to step back at that point. But the fact is that those conversations, when we started four years ago, were rare and hard to find. And what I am hopeful about is that they seem to be growing in independent sources like this. People are willing to sit down and talk about the details. And I, I do think there's demand for that. I do think people want to get over the sensational rhetoric. So that's what Reconsider is really all about. Which is brilliant. I hugely applaud what you're doing. I think it's fantastic. And I've listened to your podcast now uh, several times. I think it's always just so, as you say, just brilliantly informative. Um, I think the whole picture is, is very useful. I One of my concerns uh, I think I have is that, uh, and, and speaking to people just in our recent general election that we, that we had in the UK, people don't have much time because lives are busy and work is longer and childcare and everything else. And digesting everything to do with the subject takes uh, a, a while is there um uh you know i i don't know a need to kind of truncate things for people or or, or format them for people or is that that's probably already part of the problem that we've we've had for years isn't it i think this is actually a responsibility that's incumbent upon journalists and people presenting information and analysis of current events because you're right i don't think most people have time for unless they're like political analysts or you know inter international affairs wonks to dedicate more than maybe an hour a day towards following global affairs. And that's if they're really curious and involved in it. And I think that's fair. I don't think that the average citizen, and by average I just mean non-policy wonk, the non-expert, 
should have a responsibility to dedicate some unreasonable portion of their lives to following the details. It's therefore the responsibility of the people presenting that information to be as contextual and honest and upfront as possible. There is a great example that we wrote a piece about on reconsidermedia.com. It was from, I don't know, maybe late 2017 when Kim Jong-un said something along the lines of the actions that the U.S. has committed amount to a declaration of war. And all of the news, almost all of the news outlets, and we have a list of all of the news outlets that presented it this way, said, oh my gosh, Kim Jong-un said we're at war. Oh my gosh. But if you look back in time, 10 years, he said that same thing. Well, him and his father, Kim Jong-il, have said the same thing like 16 other times. And once you know that additional piece of information, all of a sudden your perspective on that particular event changes. So we listed all of the news organizations that we found that presented it sensationally and then all the rest that actually mentioned that Kim Jong-un had said things like that before. So I think that's irresponsible coverage. I don't think that that is the, responsible of the, that that is the responsibility of the consumer of the news. That is the responsibility of the producer of it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, no, that's fair. And, and thank goodness that, that podcasts like yourself uh, uh, are challenging it. I think it's it's fantastic. And and as you said, it's I think independent media uh, is hopefully, hopefully what will change things. That's what I hope. We've we've got the issue here at the moment where, uh, in fact, the week that this comes out and listeners will be hearing it, uh, the world is being told that we are leaving the EU, but we're not until the end of the year. And it's only if you really want to read into it that you'll find that. You know? But the general view is that we're leaving on January 31st and we don't actually properly leave till December the 31st. But hey, it's all right. Um, so what I wanted to ask you, it's just a question that I ask all uh, the podcast guests on this show. And thank you again for joining me, Sandra. I've really appreciated it. It's been fascinating. Um, I just want to ask, apart from yourself and Reconsider, uh, which obviously all listeners should go and check out and subscribe to, um, who would you recommend uh, listeners also uh, follow or read up on? Who do you who do you go to for information? Who are your favorites? There are a lot of great like, think tanks that produce fairly neutral or fairly objective analysis for the Middle East. I really like the Washington Institute. They good work. They do good work. Uh, the Middle East Institute does pretty good work. My colleague Jacob Shapiro, who I worked with at Geopolitical Futures, um, he is in the process of creating his own newsletter now, but you can follow him on LinkedIn or Twitter and read his analysis, and it's really high quality. Uh, there's so many different sources that I refer to. I kind of have one of those RSS readers, and I pull in maybe 150 different news sources that I kind of scan through every day. And the purpose there is if you read the same story from different outlets, like if you read something about Turkey from Hurriet or uh, Haber News as opposed to CNN, you get a Turkish perspective on the same issue and you start to see what commonalities exist and how things are being presented differently. So I don't have like single sources that I'd go to, but I'd suggest if you want context, go to places like Reconsider or go to Jacob Shapiro or go to think tanks, do a little background reading, and then read about the same event from different sources. And especially question the sources that you take at face value that you trust because you're more likely to not be skeptical of the places that you like. If you're on the left, you're just going to take what NPR says and whatever. If you're on the left, maybe it's Fox News. Or sorry, if you're on the right, maybe it's Fox News. But if you're really curious about something, try to find that same story covered in a place that you're less familiar about. Be skeptical of it and read things that challenge your position because that's how you're going to have – that's how you're going to develop the most nuanced perspective and most well-supported perspective on one particular topic or another. 
thanks so much to Zander for that and to Luciano at Oscar Hamilton for helping arrange it. Um, Zander can be found on Twitter at ZanderSnyderX and his podcast, website and all blogs at Reconsider Media can be found at ReconsiderMedia.com as well as all those usual podcast outlets where you might even listen to this show on. You've been sending in some amazing suggestions for interviewees lately and I bow to your suggestive abilities. No, wait, um, that sounds wrong. Anyway, I've got a few lined up, but still, please more, please, please more. Um, there's five years worth to fill. We're definitely going to need some good guests for the, over the next five years. So let me know what you'd like to hear more about, who you'd like to uh, hear be poorly interviewed by me. And you can do all of that at Parpol Bro on Twitter, the Partly Political Broadcast Facebook page, the contact page at partlypoliticalbroadcast.co.uk or email me at partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com. Or why not have your suggestion engraved on a commemorative 50p coin and with the potential for it to circulate round to me taking years and years as I'm one day trying to wrestle someone for it so I can add to the scrap metal pile for smelting weapons with in the post-apocalyptic desert wasteland we'll then reside in, I'll glance at your suggestion and think, oh, that might have been good if they hadn't already been eaten by a giant cockroach. So, you know, as always, it's probably just best to email, isn't it? And that's all for this week's Partly Political Broadcast podcast. Tar muchly to you and your goddamn crew for tuning in. And remember, should you actually enjoy listening to this rather than, you know, persevering through it week in, week out as some sort of self-inflicted punishment for all those ills you did? Yeah, we know exactly what you did. We're all aware. Um, But if this is an oral flagellation for you because that library book you never returned was the reason your local library shut down, that one book, I suppose, how were you to know that it was the the wage register? And that biscuit that you stole from that man in the cafe was the beginning of his descent as a question his own sanity when he was one biscuit less than he thought if you're not doing it for those reasons then and you actually do enjoy it then please do recommend the show to other people what you like and what like you post about it on your socials aggressively send the links to people shout about it in the park and maybe also review it on apple podcasts or elsewhere and donate to the Kofi or patreon too thanks as always to Acast, my brother the last skeptic for the musics and cat day who does all the linear liner notes This will be back next week with the first partly political broadcast released outside the European Union, meaning that you will, of course, listen to it in exactly the same way as always, but feel excited about this time next year when you'll be tuning in on all your devices that haven't been pat-tested correctly and may well explode in your ears. Bye! This week's show was brought to you by Leo Vradka's No Evo Soccer, a brand new type of football game where you can pit teams of millions against teams of less millions on a pitch the size of Luxembourg. Where's the ball? No one knows. Is it even here? Maybe it's been stolen by Russia. Does your team have the negotiating skills and sheer numbers to successfully score a goal or at least discuss how goals may be scored in the future against your opponents? No Evo Soccer, the power of trading unions, but also, you know, kicky stuff. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 